what more can the United States do here if, for instance, the Polish government, a NATO member, wants to send fighter jets? Does that get a green light from the U.S., or are you afraid that that will escalate tension? No, that, that, that gets a green light. In fact, we're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs if, in fact, they choose to provide these fighter jets to, to the Ukrainians. Uh, what could we do? How can we help to make sure that uh, they get something to backfill the planes that they're handing over to, to the Ukrainians? That was Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Face the Nation last Sunday, giving the green light to a Polish proposal to send MiG fighter jets to Ukraine to help that country fight a relentless Russian invasion. But by the end of the week, the deal was dead. President Biden vetoed the idea after U.S. intelligence and Pentagon officials raised concerns that, among other factors, the introduction of the planes would provoke the Russians even further and lead to an escalation of the conflict. It was, to be sure, a bitter disappointment to the Ukrainian government, whose president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has been literally pleading with the West for more firepower to save his country. We'll talk to a man in the middle of that controversy and much else involving the Ukraine crisis, the new U ambassador to Poland, Mark Brzezinski, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have to say, this reversal by the U.S. government about sending the MiG jets was really quite eye-popping to have on Sunday, the Secretary of State saying, it's got a green light. And then by the end of the week, Blinken's boss, the president, vetoes it after U.S. officials, intelligence officials raise concerns, is kind of head spinning given the enormity of this crisis. That doesn't mean that there weren't legitimate reasons to express concerns about sending MiG fighters into that conflict, but it sure isn't doing much to help the Ukrainians. Well, it's both eye-popping and head-spinning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine the person who's- How many more <laughs> cliches can I get I'm into? I'm just trying to imagine the person uh, whose eyes are both popping right. and head, head yeah. is spinning. Uh, <laughs> Actually, it sounds like <laughs> something out of The Exorcist, but yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just on The Exorcist steps with my daughter visiting Georgetown University. So, yes. All right. We got serious business to talk so, about So, uh, look, clearly this was a, a snafu in terms of communications. I mean, the the Americans say they were taken totally by surprise when the Poles announced publicly that they were going to send these MiGs to Poland, but have them stop over on a U.S. base in Germany first so that it was the Americans who would have to deliver them. That came a few days later well, after right. Blinken's comments, though. That's right, because because when Blinken made the comments, he thought that the planes were going to be going directly from the Poles to the uh, Ukrainians. Yeah. And so- Leaving our hands out of it. Right. right. And yeah. and it obviously was going to be way more provocative if the US was delivering these planes. So it was uh, clearly not a, a great communication. These things uh, happen. It's a speed bump, mostly 
you have to say that uh, the diplomacy by the Biden administration in Europe has actually gone pretty well. Uh, none of us can really remember a time when the Europeans and NATO and, and the Americans have been quite this uh, unified. But that was was definitely notable. Meanwhile, let's not lose sight of the fact that that the United States is sending vast amounts of munitions to Ukraine. This certainly is not the only thing that's being relayed to Ukraine in its defense right now. It's This seems like more of a little internal Biden administration, uh, national security agency or intelligence community versus Pentagon kerfuffle. Maybe kerfuffle is too mild. More somewhere between head spinning and kerfuffle. Okay, a um, kerfuffle in the context of a war of aggression by the Russians, the shelling of Ukrainian cities, the bombardment of a maternity ward and a nuclear power plant, and a country's president, Zelensky, who, as I said, is pleading for more firepower. Whatever we are providing, the Ukrainians are saying is not enough. Politically, this is damaging to the Biden administration because it raised, you know, Blinken raised this idea that we were going to deliver deliver these uh, MiG fighter jets to the Ukrainians when, you know, when they need them. And, you know, meanwhile, so, so then they reverse course. Now, 40 Republicans on the Hill have written this scathing letter saying that the administration the ought to do this, letter. ought to do this, ought to do that. Well, I'm just look, it's not yeah. it's not helpful politically for them. And I want to go back to Victoria's point. Uh, it is true that we are sending all of these arms. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars in arms to Ukraine, um, getting getting them there in kind of warp speed. And, you know, we call them lethal defensive weapons. Like there's a big distinction between those kinds of weapons and these fighter jets. Uh, but when you're in a war, right, lethal defensive weapons are offensive weapons, right? Because what they're doing with these Stinger missiles and anti-tank uh, uh, missiles is killing Russian soldiers and apparently doing it pretty effectively. So then you start to wonder, well, okay, why is it more escalatory to send planes in? And um, I'm sure there are military experts uh, who could explain that to us. But uh, still, it, it becomes sort of more of a distinction without a difference um, than uh, than before the war had actually started. Okay, is is that true? Because we we all know that everyone is on edge about escalating this. That this is that that we're in a situation where a misstep by NATO. And the United States can take what is already a pretty awful situation and make it a lot worse. And this may be evidence of how nervous and uncertain and volatile the situation is and how unpredictable Putin is and how carefully the Biden administration and our NATO allies are managing whether or not they provoke him or escalate? Because you and I might step back and think, you know, kind of objectively, how could this be viewed as an escalation? But we're talking about it in, as I say, a volatile context and in the context of how Putin's going to react. That's a very good point. I was just reading, I think, in uh, Bill Burns' biography, his memoirs, this is when he was, uh, he's currently the CIA director, been very involved um, in this policy, but before served as uh, ambassador to Moscow and met with Putin on a number of occasions. And he said, you know, with Putin um, in these meetings, it's more about psychology than it is about, you know, geopolitics. 
Well, let's not forget the other big issue we want to talk to Ambassador Brzezinski about, and that is this just catastrophic refugee crisis uh, that's emerging from this conflict. You know, two and a half million Ukrainians have left the country in just the last couple of weeks, the bulk of them going to Poland. And given there's no sign that this uh, that the war is uh, is abating, this is these are numbers are only likely to grow even more. And just imagining the care, the feeding, and the future of millions of Ukrainian refugees is uh, is, is something staggering to consider. So um, we should point out that um, uh, our guest, uh, Ambassador Brzezinski, is, uh, comes from a well-known family. His sister, of course, is Mika Brzezinski of uh, Joe and Mika on MSNBC. And, uh, of course, he is the son of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the National Security advisor to President Jimmy Carter, who very strongly advised rebutting Russian aggression in Afghanistan, including the sending of Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen, which did have a long-term effect in causing the Russians to withdraw from that country. Yeah, Brzezinski was a noted cold warrior. He was uh, one of the more hawkish members of the Carter administration um, and very tough on, on the Soviets. But his relevant heritage goes even further back, uh, doing a little bit of research before the interview. Brzezinski's grandfather was uh, Tadeusz Brzezinski, who was a uh, Polish diplomat and consular office officer based in Germany in Leipzig uh, during World War before World War II in the 30s, and uh, was involved in helping Jewish refugees get out of Germany uh, during that period. Um, and also, by the way, served in Kharkov, then in Soviet Ukraine, by the way, during the Great Purge when Stalin uh, was solidifying his control over the over the party um, and the country. So dealing with these uh, crises and, and you know, refugee crises in Central and Eastern Europe is uh, deep in Brzezinski's DNA. So it'll be interesting to talk to him about yeah, all of fair this. Fair to say he is one ambassador who does appear to be fully qualified for his job. So uh, a lot to talk to the ambassador about. So let's get to it. We are now joined by the U.S. Ambassador to Poland, Mark Brzezinski. Ambassador, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. Ambassador, you are right in the middle of one of the world, well, the world's biggest crisis right now. And I want to start off by asking you about the refugees pouring into Poland right now. The mayor of Warsaw said today, we are dealing with the greatest migration crisis in the history of Europe since World War II. The situation is getting more and more difficult every day. Two and a half million Ukrainian refugees overall in just the last few weeks, one and a half million of them in Poland. What's it like for the Poles right now? How are these refugees being cared for? What is their status right now? Sure. Well, Victoria, Michael, and Daniel, thank you again so much for having me today. And this is the story that I want to convey. It's a story about young people, about young people in Poland organizing primarily on social media and saying, Let's go to the border. 
let's go to the border and help people who we do not know, who often come in families primarily of women and children, who have very little idea about Poland, about the cities here and where to go, and saying to each other, let's help them. Let's bring them into our apartments. Let's get them food. Let's get their kids into schools. That is happening thousands upon thousands of times. And it is an amazing story of people who often are the children of victims themselves, because Poland over history has been a victimized country, an occupied country, a country that was oppressed and where terrible things, including the world's great tragedy, the Holocaust has occurred. And these folks are running towards the fire, not away from the fire, to help those fleeing the fire. It's an amazing story. And, you know, I was U.S. ambassador in Sweden for four years, and the Swedes rightfully say it has been hard for us to assimilate one million refugees who've come over here over the last 20 years. And Victoria, Michael, and Daniel, 1.5 million refugees have come from Ukraine to Poland in the last 10 days. It is a amazing movement of people. We don't know what Putin will do next. We don't know how many refugees will come to Poland. And when I say to Poland, they are many of them, anecdotally speaking, I can report to you, want to stay here because the language is similar. Ukrainian and Polish are both Slavic languages that like Russian, they're very similar to each other. So the communication is easier. The food is similar, Ukrainian and Polish food. The people, at least from Western Ukraine, often have some semblance of an idea of Eastern Poland. And they all want to go back, the Ukrainians who have come here. They hope that Putin loses. They hope that their country wins against this attack and that Ukraine is one day again free and that they can get back home quickly and rebuild their lives. Mr. Ambassador, just as a practical matter, as a practical matter, how are they being cared for right now? How can the Poles absorb such an enormous number of refugees? Give us a sense of what it's like for these refugees right now. Sure. Well, let's start from where they're coming from. They're coming from Western Ukraine to eight border crossings along the eastern border of Poland. And they, you know, range from two lane roads to much bigger highway type through a kind of a wayfarers to people to get into Poland. That part of Poland is a kind of a logistics center generally for trucking between east and west trucks. And so there are many logistics trucking centers there that have been converted to makeshift refugee centers that allow people arriving to get a little bit of rest, but then once they can move to the train stations, to the bus stations, to get bussed into interior Poland, either to Krakow or to Warsaw or to other cities around here where they are received. Like I'm in Warsaw right now, that's where I'm speaking to you from. And the mayor of this city, Rafał Czeskowski, has dedicated one train station, Skodnia Warszawa, and the stadium here to receive refugees to stay a little longer. But beyond that, 
The question is, can they be placed in apartments? Can they be placed in houses? There are actually very few apartments to rent here in Warsaw because the apartments have been scooped up by people renting them for Ukrainian refugees here. And so it's, it's a little bit of a capacity issue. Um, there is an understanding that some cities in Poland uh, have bigger Ukrainian refugee communities like Wrocław uh, in southwestern Poland, um, which has in, in the past taken thousands of Ukrainian refugees. And we know Michael and, and Victoria and Daniel from our own experience in America that people go primarily to where their family is. And so Ukrainians are going to where their extended Ukrainian family is and hoping to settle there in apartments and so forth. And then the step is, can they find work here and they have a right to work here? Can they get medical services here and they have a right to medical to the social service system? And can they get their kids into schools? There's 400,000 plus Ukrainian children that have arrived here in the last 10 days that have a right to go to school. And there is a a lift now being done by the Ministry of Education to bring them all in for the spring semester and to get their education continued. Ambassador, you know, the stories that you're telling, they're truly uh, inspirational. And I guess the question is that the mayor of Warsaw, I think he said that more than 300,000 Ukrainian refugees uh, have come to Warsaw, but he's also pleading for help and help from the international community. And so the question is, for our audience, how can the United States help? What are we specifically going to do to try to ease the burden of Poland, which obviously is is a crucial ally to the United States, and we, we know that now more than than ever before. So tell me what the Biden administration is planning to do to help ease that burden. Sure. Well, thanks for that question, Daniel. And there's multiple pieces to the answer of that question. First of all, there's the security piece. I mean, bombs were falling this morning on the western side of Ukraine in Ivano-Frankivsk, which, and in other towns, some of cl as close as 40 miles, 30 miles from the Polish-Ukraine border. And so there's the security piece. And the US on the security side in the last two weeks has deployed 240 million in terms of security assistance to provide weapon systems for the Ukrainians to defend themselves, anti-armor, uh, air defense, and the like. And there is a intense focus on what it is that Putin will do next and how can we contain this situation so it doesn't become a broader war. On the humanitarian side, Vice President Kamala Harris was in Poland to reassure and to bear witness, to hear stories from Ukrainian refugees, to consult with the Polish government on what it is that we can do together on the humanitarian piece. And be, during her visit deployed 53 million in humanitarian assistance through USAID, uh, USAID administrator here, uh, Samantha Power was here last week, has deployed a DART team, a disaster assistance relief team here to southeastern Poland, which are kind of like the rapid reaction force for development professionals to assess and then begin to build out infrastructure to help those who need help. That's the government side 14 days into the crisis. On the private side, Polish Red Cross, Polish Humanitarian Assistance, PHA, are taking donations from around the world. And when we are hearing at the U.S. Embassy from folks in America, organizations, individuals. We direct them to a number of different charities and NGOs, including those among others, 
to make a contribution if you're willing. And at the same time, it's early days in this crisis. We do not know how many people will be here. And part of that is determined by what happens in Ukraine. Will the Ukrainians be able to fend off the Russians and regain sovereignty? Or will it be an occupied country? That will determine a lot. Does that mean it's too early to make firm decisions about whether the United States will admit or how many refugees the United States should admit from Ukraine? I don't think it's too early to make those decisions. And I think that is what Vice President Harris promised to bring home to Washington when she gets home today from her visit to Eastern Europe here in Romania to see what exactly the appropriate answer is by the U.S. government to that question. What is your recommendation on that score about how many uh, refugees the U.S. should take in? Michael, I can tell you from the ground here in consulting with just, you know, media, I've been down to the border three times in the last week. And so I've spent a good amount of time anecdotally engaging with people. And most of the Ukrainian refugees I have met with want to stay close to the border because they believe they can still go home. There's a hope that they that this will somehow turn in Ukraine's favor and they will be able to get home within a couple months or within this year. I, I So that is what I have been hearing here. I do think it was appropriate for Vice President Harris to convey to President Duda of Poland that she will go back to the United States and consult on what exactly will be the American response to that. So as welcoming as the polls have been to Ukrainian refugees, there have also been reports that black or Arab or Arabic refugees coming in from Ukraine have been mistreated at the Polish border. What do you know about that? I heard those reports at the beginning of this week and immediately went to the national security advisor of the Polish president, Paweł Solo, because that is intensely important to us as Americans. We don't want refugees discriminated based on national origin. So went to him, got his promise that he would issue a basically guidance or missive through the border control here, that there will be no discrimination on the basis of national origin as refugees come into come into Poland. When Vice President Harris was here yesterday and today, she sat down with refugees who have come to Poland, Ukrainian and those of national origin and and other than Ukrainian to hear their stories. And so we were able to hear anecdotally some of the things that have happened and are pretty rigorously consulting with the polls that that does not happen. And from what what I've heard the last few days, there has been really nothing that the U.S. Embassy has heard in terms of that. And we have, but we have continued to monitor it and to stay engaged with the polls, that we are all in this together, that this is not just a Polish crisis, that it's an international crisis. It's good for the Americans to join you. And as we join you, we want no discrimination on the basis of national origin. As intense as the refugee crisis has been in Poland over the course of the last two weeks, there's signs that it may get even worse. As you indicated, there's bombing now in the west of Ukraine. There are, Ukraine is a, is a nation of, I think, more than 40 million people. Poland could see millions more. Is it prepared for that? It's a capacity question, Victoria. And what we have seen in what's unique about this particular situation is that many, many of the refugees 
have been very quickly absorbed into the homes of Poles and assimilated, therefore, at least initially into communities. To what degree those initially taken in will be welcome for the long term? How sustainable is this? How will folks coming in from eastern Ukraine, from east of Odessa, who know much less about Poland and much less about the system here, will be equally welcomed is to be determined. Part of this is how long this crisis lasts. If it's a months long crisis, that's one answer in terms of your question. If it's years and years, it's probably another. One just quick follow up, uh, because I know Mike has another question, but I I just saw that Boris Johnson's government in Britain is now allowing for British citizens to take some number of Ukrainian refugees into their homes. Is that something that you would recommend the Biden administration do? Are you looking at that? Well, you know, Boris Johnson, when he was here last week, said that they would take 200,000 Ukrainians, uh, particularly those, as as I remember, as he put it, who have family in Ukraine and intake them into Great Britain. I guess my perspective, Daniel, is that as I see it here on the ground in Poland, I am seeing the focus of those here on how quickly can we get back home Mm -hmm. as opposed to how quickly can we get to the United States. That is anecdotally speaking to you what I'm hearing here. And that the ferocity of the Ukrainian resistance has inspired those to hold position here and to keep their eyes focused eastward. So that is what I'm seeing here. At the same time, Vice President Kamala Harris is going back to Washington with the question to the U.S. government regarding what will be our decision regarding taking in Ukrainian refugees. But I can report to you that that is not a question being driven to the embassy right now. It is alternatively, how can we provide humanitarian assistance here in Poland? And how can the security piece be bolstered and there be a synchronicity between the Americans and the Poles so that the words that have been confidently expressed by our president and vice president that we will defend every single inch of NATO territory, which means every single inch in Poland will be seen through. And there is great belief in that. We have 10,000, we have 10,000 US soldiers now in Poland, all on Polish bases here and deployed across the country, air units, army units, helicopter units, and so forth. And the capacity of the U.S. footprint is going to be evolving based on what happens in Ukraine. The the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was here late last week um, consulting at length regarding this evolving situation so that the military footprint can be, you know, appropriate for what is being thrown at from the East by President Putin. Ambassador, uh, as you know, the Ukrainians and President Zelensky have been pleading for more security assistance. And one proposal that was on the table just five days ago was for the Poles to send MiG fighter jets to the Ukrainians to resist the Russian invasion. In fact, 
Secretary of State Blinken on Sunday on Face the Nation said Poland had a green light to do this. And in fact, he said, we're talking with our Polish friends right now what we might be able to do to backfill their needs if they choose to provide these fighter jets to the Ukrainians. That was Sunday. Today, it's Friday. It looks like that option is now completely off the table, reportedly vetoed by President Biden himself. Tell us what went wrong with the idea of getting these fighter jets to the Ukrainians. Well, Michael, you know, military assistance is arriving from the U.S. and our allies into Poland every day. And that includes systems and weapons that we believe the Ukrainians need most to defend themselves against this Russian aggression, like, as I mentioned earlier, anti-armor, uh, air defense systems, and the like. With regard to what we heard from the Poles, after a review by the Pentagon and by the intelligence community, and after extensive consultations with our NATO allies, we had concerns about the transfer of additional fighter aircraft to the Ukrainian Air Force. And the Pentagon assessed that adding aircraft to the Ukrainian inventory just was not likely to significantly change the effectiveness of the Ukrainian Air Force relative to Russian capacities. And the intelligence community assessed that the transfer of MiG-29s to Ukraine may be mistaken as escalatory and could, could result in a significant Russian reaction that could increase the prospects of a conflict with NATO. And what, but, but I think it's important. I think that it's important that the options that are being deployed are being assessed by our military and intelligence community as appropriate to the facts on the battlefield in Ukraine. The question arises, uh, why are aging MiGs necessarily more es escalatory than you know, javelin anti-tank missiles, rocket launchers, guns, ammunition, Singer anti-aircraft missiles. If you're sitting in a, you're, you're a Russian conscript in a, in a Russian tank, that seems like offensive uh, weaponry, not defensive. So are MiGs really that much more escalatory? I know this, maybe this is a little out of your lane. You're not a military guy, but I'm just, I, I'm trying to understand that. Sure, Daniel, excellent question. But I guess I just qu quite frankly point you to the footage that we're seeing coming out of Ukraine right now. Options are being provided to the Ukrainians that are better suited to support the Ukrainian military in their fight against Russia. So material is being provided and equipment is being provided and as well as new capabilities that we are working on to, delivery, to deliver now that I think if you look at the videos coming out of Ukraine, something's happening there. It's not nothing. And I think that what has been sent is something that we need to consider in terms of when we're discussing what's been effective and not been effective. So I just kind of I leave it at that because I think that that's an important way of responding. We want to send stuff that works and that changes the, the facts on the ground and not, and, and not stuff that doesn't. <laughs> Ambassador, I was just struck by a phrase you used that the U.S. intelligence community rejected the idea of the MiG fighter jets because they wanted to only send weapons that are, quote, appropriate to the facts on the battlefield. Now, the Ukrainians might say to that, we're fighting for our life right now. And you, U.S. intelligence officials in Washington are telling us what is appropriate and what is not. I can see how they might take a little umbrage of that, but I guess the follow-up is, 
what more would be appropriate for the United States to provide the Ukrainians right now as the Russians move in on Kiev and start bombing Western Ukraine? Right. Well, what we have been sending and what we see as the Ukrainians needing to defend themselves against the Russians is anti-armor and air defense weapons. Is that it? Are there any but, more but, options among, on the table? Among, among other material that is being sent, humanitarian and otherwise. This is not a one-way conversation, as I think Daniel's question was. It's a definitely a two, two-way conversation in terms of what works. But I refer, you know, I think most appropriately, you should talk with the DOD in terms of how these assessments are being made, in terms of what works. If there's any country that is uh, at the, the leading edge of, of a potential kind of escalation or expansion of the Ukraine crisis, it's Poland. And obviously, there are significant concerns about whether or not the war spreads beyond Ukraine. What is your assessment of the readiness of Poland and the uh, sense of concern or alarm that Poland has that they might be on the next front line? Sure. Well, I've made a point to get out to our military, to the 82nd Airborne, to the EFP, to other deployments that we have in Povitz, in Zeshuf, and other places. And just to put eyes on the American men and women in uniform and their readiness. And I can tell you that there is a synchronicity, not just with the Poles, but with the Brits, with the Romanians, with the Croats and others who are deployed in some of these enhanced force deployments that are multinational. They are ready, they are trained, they've gone through multiple exercises, they know the topography, and they have the machinery and tools appropriate for that topography. And they have situational awareness north, east, and from the southeast with regard to this particular conflict and can just report to you, Victoria, that I am totally confident. And, you know, Secretary Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said this when he was here a week and a half, that we are absolutely prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory. And as someone who was a Fulbright scholar in Poland 30 years ago, because I did a Fulbright here between 1991 and 1993, um, and saw what Poland was like, before it was a member of NATO, who heard the anxiety and the uncertainty of just people on the street just after Soviets, Soviet troops had left here. Their membership in NATO has allowed this society to function. Restaurants and stores and schools are open. And beyond that, membership has allowed Poland to thrive and to extend humanity. I would offer to you, Victoria, that the rush, the humanitarian rush to the border by the Poles might be less so if it weren't a member of NATO, that it would be riven with anxiety and uncertainty and fear about what will happen next, as opposed to now, which is in certain ways, what the Ukrainians are experiencing today is what we experienced in 1939 when the Nazis invaded Poland and we fell in two weeks. And we wanna help these folks, they are us. And so there is, a, there is an interdependence between what 
has happened through NATO membership and the American forces being here on the ground and the willingness and the confidence really of the Poles to extend themselves humanely that I want to report to you. So not notwithstanding, you know, Poland's membership in NATO, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, Poland was one of the countries that people were uncertain about in terms of where it would kind of align or how it would address what's going on. Tell us about those kind of two or three weeks before the Ukraine invasion started that that tipped Poland to the point where it really kind of turned and more fully embraced NATO and its uh, its westward look. Sure. Well, I want to give a shout out to our intelligence community. Because I think that this is in many ways the finest hour in terms of modern times of the U.S. intelligence community that has been making the call since early in the fall to our friends over here in Central and Eastern Europe regarding what is happening, regarding what are the defensive and offensive structures of the Russian military and what are the Russian political leaders intending to do with it with regard to Ukraine. And that engagement has been consistent. The president decided to share, you know, secret intelligence with our allies to get them prepared. And at first, I think there was questions from those receiving over here, those intelligence briefings, would Putin really do it? And the cacophony of briefings and engagements, which I was doing, I've been, I've been here, Victoria, in Poland for six weeks. I, I arrived here six weeks ago. And the drive by what I, that I tried to do was to get to Polish officials, not just to get to know you because I knew here, but to get this intelligence in front of them and say, we have a common challenge here and we need to be in solidarity. And over the last six weeks, the polls saw what was happening and were able to quite frankly, develop a posture of working with us to fully understand, first of all, the border situation, which is a complex system, eight border crossings. What would Ukrainian refugees do when they were fleeing West? Where would they go? Oh, and by the way, where would the thousands of American citizens go when they cross those borders into Poland? And I think that we had virtually a scientific, or not virtually, but in fact, a scientific understanding of that border situation in Jeshuv, Przemysl, Medica, and other places along that border so that even when the worst happened, because the Poles were anticipating half a million refugees, we're now at 1.5 million in 10 days, we may be at 2.5 million, um, likely because it's 150,000 a day now coming across the border here. There was a scientific and coherent understanding of what would happen at least in terms of the border crossings. And that was the most immediate point of alarm between us all. Collateral to that, we have been engaging with the Poles across the board in terms of their relationship with America and in terms of their relationship with Europe, because we want as good a conversation going on with us, the US government, and as good as conversation as possible between the Poles, the EU, and European partners, because indeed we're all in this together. And the Poles in kind have really, I think, bumped up their game, Victoria, to get things better than they were in terms of the dialogue on rule of law, democracy. It's not perfect, and it needs to get better. 
but certain very clear steps have been made by the Polish administration, not I think because they wanted to, but because they had to, to really have the kind of broad strategic alignment with us that they have. And I think the relationship is super strong because of that. Because of that. Surely, while this was all going on in the lead up to the actual invasion, the Russians were counterbriefing. There must have been a furious kind of uh, game of diplomatic chess going on in Poland. I, I can't imagine that your Russian counterpart wasn't also going into the Polish government and and to members of the of the of the kind of the Polish official of the Polish cabinet trying to bring Poland over to its side. Can you tell us more about that that chess game? Were you aware that? That you were, you know, had a rival that you were count, that you were briefing against. Sure, but without going to kind of too deeply into intelligence, it's not only the Russians and the Americans who have, you know, intelligence services. The the, the countries here have their own intelligence services, and I think their intelligence services were able to confirm what the Americans were saying. And so, whatever the Russians were saying, the Americans were being kind of endorsed by the facts on the ground as others were seeing it as well. And the important piece of it, Victoria, I feel is that President Biden understood where we were with our European partners and allies six months ago. And he realized that there need to be an enhanced consultation and engagement so that we would be positioned well when this happened. In other words, if we waited until February 1st to start intelligence briefings, we would not be as well off as we are today. And that was a gut call on part of our president who has spent five decades understanding and learning the Europeans and building a network. I thought that was a superb call because it allowed Poland, which again has received 1.5 million refugees in 10 days. There's all kinds of news reports every day about alarming and scary things happening just across the border. And there is a lot of reassurance felt here that I think is the result of this intensive engagement over the last six months. When I go on Polish television, I say Polska jest bezpieczna, Poland is safe, and Polska jest zabezpieczona, Poland is secure. And people say, we know, we believe it. And that's thanks to the president's gut call. Well, let me ask you just to follow up, because you you mentioned that you've only been in Poland for six weeks. And in fact, filling ambassadorial vacancies has been one of the hardest things that the Biden administration has had right now. As the, at the end of last year, ha- almost half of all U.S. ambassadorial posts were empty, including, I think, to the, at, at this point, many of the Baltic countries still do not have U.S. ambassadors. I, I don't believe that there's one in Estonia right now, although uh, or in you Ukraine. might be able has the failure of the Senate to take up Biden's nominees for a variety of these posts hobbled U.S. efforts? I mean, you know, is, is it still a problem? Are you seeing its effects? Well, Secretary Blinken made that just a couple of days ago clear that he needs to get his team in place. I mean, there's no U.S. ambassador in Germany, in the Czech Republic, as you said, in Ukraine. Um, I'm just thinking of the border countries along Poland and in many other places. That is no question hobbling in terms of our engagement. We have a fantastic team at U.S. Embassy Warsaw, and I am a member of that team, and every member is working their tails off 
on this crisis. And so every additional person, including the chief of mission, has to get out to their post to deal with this. We have a situation in which Putin may be trying to break Europe. And we have a situation in which there is an opportunity to push Putin back. And the next year or two could be the best two years in the, for the next 150 years in terms of European or transatlantic history. So we have an opportunity for something bad or something good to happen. We need every player on the field uh, in a big way. Um, and so Secretary Blinken made that clear. You were talking before about the advantages to Poland of NATO membership. Uh, you were at the National Security Council helping to coordinate Russia policy during the Clinton administration when the U.S. was promoting NATO expansion to Eastern Europe. But as you know, there were people warning at the time that this was going to be unsettling to the Russians. And it, indeed, it's been a consistent theme of Vladimir Putin all along that hostile NATO forces are encroaching on his borders. Looking back on it, was it the right thing for the United States to promote NATO membership to the former Iron Curtain countries in Eastern Europe? Thanks, Michael, for that question. And so I'm here in Poland, a country of 40 million people that is a close ally and a special friend of the United States. And despite the fact that the its immediate neighbor is on fire and much of that neighbor's people are coming here, this country is stable, it feels secure, it is not anxious like it could be. And anxious friends are different than non-anxious friends, as we all know. And that is a security benefit for the United States because we have a global footprint in terms of our security policy. And so I think that it was absolutely the right call. I cannot imagine how uncertain and anxious the Polish people would be if Poland would not would, were not in NATO, and I would say for all the East, Europe, East European states that are in NATO, because Putin is proving the thesis that these countries needed to be secure because he's on a killing spree to the East. You mentioned my service on the National Security Council, Michael, in the late 1990s. And also when I was there, President Putin emerged, emerged out of nowhere, came in from St. Petersburg, former KGB agent to replace Boris Yeltsin, to cover Boris Yeltsin's you know, various larcenies and crimes and, and theft and this type of thing, and took a intensely nasty approach to pacification in the North Caucasus and really crushed the people there during the situation in Chechnya. My fear is something of a pacification program that he might pursue in Ukraine. We'll see what happens. But this is a guy, tragically, who we know. He's committing the crimes that we were worried about. And I think the NATO membership gives the confidence to this part of the world that it absolutely needed. And it's ready to walk the walk. I mean, one other thing, and that is that, you know, the polls are, you know, they just, we just, uh, Secretary Austin just announced $6 billion purchase by the, po by the polls of Abrams tanks, F-35s, Aegis system, Patriots, HIMARS, and so forth. The purchase of weaponry from the U.S., the best in class systems that we have, show that they're spending and they're bumping their military spending up to 3%, which exceeds the NATO base.
So Mike was alluding to the Eastern European countries that joined NATO, Poland, Czechoslovakia, the Baltics. Uh, but as you know, Putin's beef now is Ukraine and the possibility down the line of Ukraine uh, joining uh, NATO. And uh, you will remember President Bush at the, the Bucharest NATO summit in 2008, supporting um, Ukraine's membership in the so-called the Membership Action Plan, a step toward allowing them to join NATO. You know, and it was a pretty commonly held view at the time uh, by the foreign policy establishment that inviting Ukraine into NATO was going to uh, seriously provoke the Russians, cross a red line. Uh, they viewed it as an existential threat and could lead to a military confrontation. And I'm going to read you a, a, a couple of quotes here, uh, one from Henry Kissinger, a kind of avatar of the foreign policy establishment. And this is what he said, the West must understand that to Russia, Ukraine can never be just a foreign country. If Ukraine is to survive and thrive, it must not be either side's outpost against the other. It should function as a bridge between them. Instead of joining NATO, Ukraine should pursue a posture compar uh, comparable to that of Finland, in which it cooperates with the West in most fields, but carefully avoids institutional hostility toward Russia. Another foreign policy uh, Mandarin um, was your father, who was national security advisor uh, to Jimmy Carter and something of a Cold War hawk. And he also, at the time, embraced the Finland model. And he said, Ukraine could have, quote, no participation in any military alliance viewed by Moscow as directed at itself. So was he wrong at the time? Have things changed? How do you reconcile those views with the position of the United States government uh, currently? Well, I think if one would suggest that somehow this mass homicide that is going on in Ukraine is triggered by steps to secure countries to Ukraine's West, I just don't think that, I, I don't validate that. What is happening here is mass homicide that is totally and completely unjustified. But well, the, the issue is not, none, none of this is to justify what Putin has done. The question is, could it have been avoided if we had handled our policy vis-a-vis eastward expansion uh, in NATO differently? My read of Putin, having watched his ascension from the late 1990s to where he is, is that he is a thug who has a revanchist notion of Russia's, of Russia's footprint in Eurasia. And that for him, Kiev and Odessa were central focal points of what a revived or renewed Soviet bloc would be. And I think that that is his driving motivation behind all of this. The NATO issue is, a, is essentially a smokescreen. Superseding everything else. And I think to the contrary, NATO membership is a very clear thing in Putin's mind that he does not want to tangle with. Because as Secretary Austin made clear, NATO has 1.9 million soldiers you know, in uniform uh, under arms versus the Russian military, which is less than 200,000 and do the math, uh, was basically his point. Um, I think it's an incredibly important stabilizing point in the transatlantic community and Eurasia. If 
Putin is, in fact, a thug who's determined to expand Russian power and influence. Is there any diplomatic off-ramp at this point? And if so, what is it? It's a great question, Michael. And I, I think that Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan have offered the folks around Putin continuously off-ramps and quite appropriately, because we want the bloodshed to end and for this to stop. What is that yeah. off-ramp? Is yeah, sure. it accepting Russian control of eastern Ukraine and accepting the annexation of Crimea? Is that the diplomatic solution here? I think what we're what 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 will result what what may result in the use of that off-ramp of that off-ramp is the pressure put on Putin by those close to him from devastating sanctions, from diplomatic isolation, and other measures that are painful to those who can get to him and say, would you stop this? This is insanity. So I'm glad that those diplomatic off-ramps are being offered, despite the fact that we're you know, having to prepare for every contingency. So just to be clear, the U.S. could accept Russian control of eastern Ukraine and Crimea in exchange for a withdrawal of Russian military forces from the rest of the country. Yeah, I, I'm not in a position in which I can say that. I'm here to put eyes on on the synchronicity between the Polish military, the NATO footprint here, and the American military here, and then to develop contingencies regarding this humanitarian mass that is crossing over our border. But I can tell you, I am honored to work for a secretary who's working assiduously to try to make the diplomatic off-ramp work because the pressure being put on those closest to Putin could work. Um, and I think the severity of it will drive them to do something. And I'm prayerful, I'm prayerful that it will work. This outpouring of support from Poles and young Poles, how much of this do you think is, is, is because of um, social media? I think a lot of it is. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny that you ask that because you would think, well, you know, why are the Pol Polish young people so intensely into this? Because after all, you know, this is not the generation from World War II. This is not the generation of 1968 or the Prague Spring. And I think it literally is kind of their moment. I think that there is a youthful moment that this is how we're going to be identified. This is how we're going to show who we are. And this is what we do. And this is why we're setting up GoFundMe sites for this Ukrainian family who I don't even know, but I've raised 13,000 Watis for. It's kind of, you're kind of, you know, I think that you might be like, well, that sounds like something I've never heard before in terms of a mass movement by young people, but it actually is that. Um, there is a humanity and kind of an innocence among Polish young people for whom this is so horrific that it's become an organizing event for. Whether that lasts and is sustainable, I don't know. I just don't know. Um, part of it is fatigue. Mr. Ambassador, just in wrapping up here, I want to come back to the human dimension, which often gets overshadowed by all of the policy talk and, and security issues. And I think you said that you've been to the border three times uh, since yes. this crisis has, be has begun. And I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about some of the conversations you have been able to have with some of these 
uh, refugees fleeing war in Ukraine. Uh, just give us a little bit of the flavor sure, uh, yeah. of the, the people that you've uh, been talking to. Sure. Well, I think that's a great question, Daniel, because in the end, it's the people that count. And so I'm a dad. And so when I've talked to primarily women in the lines who have children with them, I've been amazed by how calm their children are after waiting for three days in line. I can't imagine them. And then, you know, I always tell the kids when the mom says that I'm so, you know, dumne, I'm so proud of you kids for having done that. And the fact that they can still smile is to me amazing because it is fricking cold over here. And to stand for three days in the cold to me, I think is a form of torture. Um, and so I can report to you, I've seen human beings doing extraordinary feats physically to get across the border. I've also seen ordinary people in Poland doing, doing extraordinary things. And to me, that's the most beautiful thing you can say about humanity, about someone who maybe themselves don't, doesn't have a job, but they jump in their car, organize with friends to go help someone who they don't know, and they probably will not know in the future, but to bring them someplace and to feel good about that and to then do it again. That's happening thousands upon thousands of time. And I'm so honored to be the president's personal representative to Poland to really try to share this story through you three and through as many other people as possible, because it's a great story out of a terrible story. Um, and, you know, in certain ways, it's the combination of something ancient, some kind of connectivity between these two Slavic countries, and then something modern, people organizing by iPhones and through social and through other ways to do something that really, Daniel, hasn't happened in this part of the world when people were victimized historically. And there's been many, many iterations of that, including the worst kinds. And that's helping each other to a mass degree like you see today. It's an awesome story. I welcome you three, Victoria, Daniel, and Michael here to see it yourself. And um, But I'm pleased to tell it to you today. Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you.